recorded live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Big and Fruity, a podcast for people who like a glass of wine. Sit back, relax, pour out a glass of your favorite wine, and join our host, Mr. Dave A.C., for the next hour, while we enjoy some nice wine. man who likes a good glass of red wine, your host, Mr. Dave A.C. Welcome everyone, welcome to another episode of the Big and Fruity, Big and Fruity Wine Podcast that is. Yes, we're here live every Tuesday on TalkShoe. The TalkShoe ID is double one double two seven two. I'm your host, Dave A.C. And uh, we are ready to go for another episode this is indeed episode 60, and the topic, and I've kept it a simple topic, um, wine growing and climate change. Well, the wording is simple, the subject is not, but I didn't want to use the word viticulture and uh, wine, as we are joined by guest two, so let me let guest two uh, proceed in chat. Guest two, you join us just as we've started the recording. I'm Dave A.C., and this is episode 60 of the Big and Fruity Wine Podcast. Uh, the topic for today is uh, wine growing and climate change, which is actually uh, something that we will be getting to shortly. But as ever, on the Big and Fruity Wine Podcast, I will be drinking a wine whilst I do the call itself. And I will be telling you a little bit about that. We'll then have one of our wine facts, one, a couple, one or two other little things to point out on the web, and then we will go to that topic. If it's just me on audio, we will probably go for about 35 to 40 minutes. And if I'm joined in the room with people on audio, then we may go the hour. And as I said, this is every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, let's get on with it. Well, um, the wine I am drinking uh, is poured out. It's been poured out for well over two... Well, the bottle's been opened for well over two hours, the wine has been poured out for an hour. Not tasted it yet. It's an Australian wine from South Australia, from the Limestone Coast area. It's 2011. It's 13%. Now I'm going to try and pronounce the name of it. <laughs> That's always the difficult bit. It's uh, Ridgy Didge. And I'm going to spell that for you because I'm not really sure whether my Australian accent is coming through there. Well, I haven't got one really. It's D uh, R, get that right, David. It's R I D G Y dash D I D G E. Ridgy Didge. Only an Australian winemaker could come up with a name like that. And um, let me uh, tell you that I have put up a picture, TwitPic picture, related to our Big and Fruity uh, Twitter feed. And I'm putting that in the room. And I'm going to read the URL out so people can have a look at what the bottle itself looks like. It's, by the way, a uh, Tesco wine, and it retails for £7. So that's just over about $11. Although with the UK taxes, probably it's probably only about $8 in the States. <coughs> Excuse me. 
The URL, all in small case, is the following. It's twitpick.com forward slash B4RNPH. And the four is the number four there. So let me read that out one more time. It's twitpick.com forward slash B4RNPH. And you'll see there that um, the the bottle, I think I pronounced it correctly, it's a screw cap with a, uh, well actually it's got a, quite a lot of information both on the front and the rear label. I'm just refreshing that page, 25 viewings, two of which are mine, so in just a couple of hours we've had a few people look at it. And I'm just going to mute myself while I take a sip of water. Sorry about that. That is always the bane of being a lone talker on a podcast. You can't get somebody to just speak while you uh, mute yourself. Okay, the wine is poured out. Um, it's a, a, a reasonable room temperature here in the UK, where it is now gone 10 in the evening. But it's uh, the room's probably about uh, 65, 68 degrees. But I think this wine is just above, uh, well, it's probably nearer to 58 under 60 degrees. And we've got bramble fruits on the nose, which is not unexpected with a Shiraz, but not a lot else, not getting a lot of fruit on the nose. Mm. Immediately, it's got that real meaty mouthfeel. This is a wine you can almost chew. It's a lovely, uh, almost a almost a crimson red. No, yeah, crimson red colour. It is lovely. Mm, that's got a lovely mouthfeel, and some of the fruit is coming through. And I'm getting a little bit of spice as well, but not an over complex wine. This has definitely benefited from being open a couple of hours. Let me have another taste. So although it's bramble on the nose, we've got more of a a plummy fruitiness and definitely a lovely mouthfeel. And that actually tastes rather well. Not uh, really much oak to speak of, speak of, just a little bit of vanilla, maybe a little bit of pepper, but it's really more to do with um, the lovely mouthfeel. It's a lovely full-bodied red. Let me read what it says on the label. And then we'll move on. From the front, it says, um, The soils of the limestone coast were created millions of years ago by the rift with Antarctica. Today, the soil climate and abundant pure water make this region perfect for winemaking. Ridgy Didge is Aussie speak for true and genuine. These wines are true to their name. Well, that's an aptly named uh, thing. So let's have a look what it says on the back. It says 30% by volume. If you were to drink, uh, oh, and it's labelled D as being rich and full-bodied. And let's read what it says. Deep ruby in colour with plum and cherry aromas. Packed full of juicy bramble fruit flavours. Rich and spicy. 
with a signature peppery note on the finish. Yes, well, it certainly has that uh, slight, well, not as strong, but a slight peppery note. And I am getting the, uh, the the fruit that it suggests. Not quite getting so much spice on that. And um, I'll taste that again in a moment, but reasonably satisfying for a £7 wine. And I think I'm going to enjoy that. Maybe it might even open up and develop more as the evening goes on or tomorrow. Okay, well, as usual, before we get to the main topic, now I've mentioned about the wine, uh, let me just... Oh, I did have another link to the wine, and uh, I shall just try and bring that up. Yeah, um, from the... This is from the... Let me just uh, get this page correct. Uh, this is from www.winesdirect.co.uk. And I put those links in because I do have guests who listening in the room. Um, this shows it from Tesco, um, and it is on offer with a voucher price, but normally, <clears throat> as I say, it's £7 or £6.99. Uh, it looks like it's got the V symbol for... Oh, now that is not naughty. I saw the V symbol and immediately thought this might be suitable for vegetarians. But the V, of course, in this particular instance, is uh, relating to the fact that they have got a voucher price on it. So, hmm. And let me just go to another page, which is from tescowines.com, and uh, mention about that. Let me just copy and paste that into the room. It's rather a long URL, so I'm not going to read it all. Just to say this is uh, www.tesco.com forward slash wine. And then if you put in the product name, did she uh, read? I can't get it right. R-I-D-G-Y dash D-I-D-G-E. And there's a little bit of information there. <clears throat> at, uh, it's almost £42 per case. And retails at six ninety nine a bottle, and it basically just says a little bit about the grape varietal. <clears throat> so not a lot to really add in there. So I'm just going to uh, clear off those little links just to um, mention, uh, well, to make a little bit of uh, room on my pages. Okay, we're now going to go to our little wine fact of the week, and I'm afraid we're back to an old chestnut. We're back with wine and health. So get me copy and paste the link. It's again BBC uh, News site. And the URL for this is www.bbc.co.uk forward slash news forward slash. And this is a complicated bit. It's health dash and a long string of numbers. So it's www.bbc.co.uk forward slash news, forward slash health, dash, and then it's 1991-3431. And the title of the piece, which might be easiest to search for in Google, and I'll put it in the text, is Baby Boomer Alcohol Harm More Lightly Than in Young. Now, here in the UK, I don't know whether this equates to other countries or America, but there's always the news items about young people. You know, uh, here in the UK, of course, people can drink from 18. But there's always talk about younger people, you know, getting older people to buy alcohol for them and going into parks and drinking cheap cider 
uh, drink cheap lager, uh, whatever they can get their hands on, basically. And then, of course, the people of 18 going off to colleges and getting absolutely smashed. Uh, there was one very, 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 very sad case that wasn't to do with alcohol, but was to do with that very event here in the UK just a week or so ago. A young girl had gone to a bar where they were doing cocktails, and in mixing the cocktails, they were using... Um, that very cold um, liquid oxygen. The idea is that they added a little bit of that to give this sort of smoke or uh, uh, exotic effect to the drink, but they're always supposed to add a very small amount and it actually bubbles off, it boils off the drink. So that by the time you take your first sip, that's bubbled off in this little white cloud to make your cocktail look rather thing. However, somebody must have slipped up this girl drank it, must have been for a, maybe a bet, perhaps she drank it all in one, I don't know. But um, half an hour later she was in agony and basically they had to remove part of her stomach. Literally, this uh, liquid oxygen is at minus 200 degrees or 250 degrees. It had basically, from what I can tell, almost frozen part of her stomach and it had to be reward, uh, removed. And that girl's life is going to be affected from now on. However, that is not uh, something that is typical of the, the, uh, the normal abuse that alcohol and young people are considered to have. However, this is where the article is interesting, uh, particularly for me as a person in this generation. <clears throat> and I'll read a little bit about it. Uh, more NHS money is spent on treating alcohol-related illness in baby boomers. Now, if you don't heard the term baby boomers before, that's for people who were born uh, in the five or ten years after the Second World War. So people born between uh, 1946 and about 1956 up to about 1960, that generation uh, that are now entering the 50s and 60s. Alcohol Concern Report found that the cost of hospital admissions linked to heavy drinking amongst the 55 to 74-year-olds, and these figures, by the way, are obviously not right up to date. They are figures from 2010 to 11. The cost was more than 825 million. So we're talking about one and a quarter billion dollars. In fact, it was over 10 times the figure that was spent on 16 to 24-year-olds. So far from it being the young people that were having this issue, it was all the people that were actually costing the NHS more. Um, a total, would you believe, of almost half a million people of this older age group, 454,000 were taken to hospital or needed some form of treatment which had an alcohol-related element. That's eight times more in number than the number of young people uh, that had to be treated. The cost, by the way, for those young people was £64 million, pounds, $100 million, as opposed to £820 million, pounds, uh, one and a quarter billion dollars. So that's a little bit of information. So it seems that um, every week there is some indicator about uh, alcohol. Let me just read a little bit about more about it. 
In total, nearly £2 billion was spent on alcohol-related inpatient admissions in England. I don't think this even includes Scotland's figures. This comes as more than 10 million people in England are drinking above the recommended levels, according to the report. Now, I'm just going to put a proviso in here, and this is my opinion only. I do feel as though those uh, levels suggested by doctors do seem ridiculously low to me. I mean, literally, we're talking about no more than the equivalent of, say, two bottles of wine a week for a man and maybe a bottle and a half of wine a week for a woman. Now, maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick. Uh, I certainly don't think anybody should be drinking a whole bottle of wine a day. Or some people sort of uh, maybe drink three or four bottles over the weekend. But uh, to me, um, well, there are seven days in the week. They only allow about 21 units, which is basically three units. Well, one good pint of a strong beer is almost three units. So that's like saying a man should only have one pint a night when he goes to the pub. Um, seems rather limiting to me, but I am not suggesting anybody goes out and increases their alcohol content from anything they've heard me say. It's just that I am comfortable with the levels of alcohol that I drink. Maybe as I get older, I will uh, reduce those, not just because of my health, but maybe due to cost. Okay, I'm just going to have a little drink now before I just check one or two other things, and then we will get on to our topic, uh, wine growing and climate change. Mm. This is a nice dry finish to that. It has got a little spice, not a lot, but it's just that, it's just giving that structure to it. And um, ah, I fancy some cheese now. Uh, anyway, let's get on, David. You're working. So let me, again, just get rid of those links that I've already talked about. Uh, by the way, I didn't just say that um, the limestone coast in South Australia, where this uh, Shiraz uh, wine comes from, this we're in um, between Adelaide and Victoria and Melbourne. So Sorry, we're between Adelaide and Melbourne. So we're in the... Victoria state of uh, Australia here. And this is one of the larger uh, wine-growing regions. So let me just uh, clear that out. Let me read what it says. Let me put the wiki page link in the room. Uh, let's just finish off a little bit more about that. Um, this is uh, wikipedia.org forward slash wiki forward slash limestone underscore coast. And let me just read a little bit. Let me... Hmm. I'm trying to... It's more on the actual technical side rather than the wine. But let me say a little bit about it. <clears throat> Much of the limestone coast is a region of low-lying is low-lying and was inundated by sea as recently as 2 million years ago. Previously, it had been flooded 15 to 20 million years ago. 
The plains are lined by rows of low sand hills parallel to the coast, created at a time when the coastline was at that level. Uh, the network, uh, a network of trains totaling uh, 1,450 kilometres have been constructed to channel the water away through the sand hills to the ocean. And of course, um, this is now an area that is mostly suitable for uh, the production of wine. Okay, I'm going to remove that off here. And um, we're going to go to a um, couple of little links now. We're going to talk, not in any great depth, but before I talk about this, the research is often research that's been done over the last few years. In fact, the first link I'm going to go to was posted in 2008, so it's four-year-old research. One of the things that seems to have happened, particularly this summer here in the UK, is that um, something that maybe not everybody has expected has happened. Here in the UK, we've been getting these record uh, summer temperatures, so that since the year 2000, in the last 12 years, we've had something like five of the hottest years on record. But this particular summer that's just gone has changed again. The Gulf Stream seemed to move. We had um, uh, a system of, wa of water currents and, and wind currents that moved that um, so that we were having actually colder, wetter air coming over the UK. And we had a very wet summer indeed. The apple crops and pear crops are down 20%. The potato crops are down We've been warned here in the UK that vegetables and food prices are going to rise steeply as much as 15 to 20%. And even uh, supermarkets, I've been reading, have been relaxing the rules on the actual, not the quality of the, the, the vegetables that they will take and sell, but the quality in terms of the looks. In other words, um, they don't have to be all perfectly shaped apples, perfectly shaped pears, and so on. Uh, as long as they are good tasting and, you know, obviously disease-free, they will take them and put them on sale, because otherwise the crop will be down even further. The same with potatoes, uh, they're doing that. So they're not going to get these sort of almost... Um, look at vegetables that almost look as though they've been done in a waxworks that you sometimes see, almost look artificial in the supermarkets simply because of that we've been talking about the loss of the bee population although again you can never believe scientists because the latest thing i've read about bees in actual fact there's an overpopulation of bees in the london area because about 10 years ago when this was first happening apparently a lot of people set up more and more hives in london and they're actually almost too many highs in the London area. But, um, and, uh, you know, all these things seem to have checks and balances. But what I was trying to say prior to going to these pages were that um, it may well be that we will not be getting hotter and drier summers. We may be actually going in the future towards warm but wet summers. And I'm not too sure how that will affect uh, the grape growing capabilities that are now outlined in some of these articles that I'm going to read out. However, these still are the current research, so let me copy the link to this next page that we're going to go to, which deals specifically with the UK prospects. 
and this is from the Imperial College of London, their news and events, although it is a page from 2008. Uh, and let me try and read. Well, let me tell you what the, the, the strap line is. It would probably be easier to put that into Google, and it is. Research suggests parts of UK could be too hot for winemaking by 2080. Now, I realise that that is a long time in the future, but in terms of uh, countrywide planning, that's not necessarily, uh, that's very rapid change in terms of climate. So the URL, I will try and just read once because it's too difficult, I think. Uh, www.imperial.ac.uk forward slash news and events PGGRP forward slash Imperial College and so on. Uh, I don't think I can read all that out, but look for research suggests parts of UK can be too hot for winemaking by 2080. And I'm not going to read all this. I'd like you to go and check the page out. Increasing summer temperatures could mean some parts of southern England are too hot to grow vines for the making of wine by 2080. And this is according to a new book that was launched on this day. The author, Emeritus Professor Richard Selsey, that's spelt S-E-L-L-E, EY from Imperial College London claims that if average summer temperatures in the UK continue to rise as predicted, the Thames Valley, parts of Hampshire and the Seven Valley, which currently contain many vineyards, will be too hot to support wine production within the next 75 years. And there's a, an outline map of that. And I'm going to jump down a little bit. Now, with the models suggesting the average annual summer temperature in the south of England could increase by up to 5 degrees centigrade by 2080, I've been able to map how British viticulture could change beyond recognition in the coming years. Grapes that currently thrive in the southeast of England could become limited to the cooler slopes of Snowdonia, Snowdonia and the Peak District. Unbelievable. So... That's not unbelievable, but certainly a stark warning. And there are lots of little information and pages for you to check up on that page. I'm going to go to another page now. Obviously, with just me in the room, we can't really have a debate on this. So I'm going to uh, probably keep the the uh, podcast a little bit shorter. But let me go through these links. And this is reignofterroir.com forward slash 2010, forward slash 04, forward slash 12, so that's all the date, Dr. Richard Smart on Viticulture Adaption and Climate Change. And again, I want you to go and check his page out. I'm certainly not going to do anything more than give a little bit of information about um, what's here. And this in, in the form of a, a question and answer session on this page, but let me read a little bit. Basic questions he answers for pr- prospective wine growers are, which viticulture region in the world most l- closely matches your vineyard's climate? Which varieties do you expect to do well? And what are the risks? 
And then he goes on to talk about technical ops, things to uh, overcome. And uh, let me see if I can get to the bit about actual climate. Uh, let's be quite clear. I do not study climate, climate change. The database that I have was primarily derived worldwide from a period of 1971 to 2000. So it's analysing that data. Climate data is normally 30 years averages. And I know as well, I think the sunspots, uh, there's an 11-year cycle and a 33-year cycle. And I do feel as though that does have quite an effect, as well as all the other things that have to be taken into account, like El Nino and so on. I have, that's my words, by the way, not from this site. I just use that database to feed, to seek information. However, other people who have studied such databases do find evidence of shifts over the past 30 years or so. Uh, winemakers in California make it clear that they've noticed climate change. Uh, uh, I know of wine growers in Montana who report bunt breaks and harvest up to two weeks earlier. Although, yeah, in, uh, in a couple of uh, summers recently, I do know in France, they've actually had to take gambles with when they've had a, a damp summer or a wet summer, they've had to decide whether to get the harvest in and uh, before it gets damaged by other moulds. Or <clears throat> hopefully that they will have a late summer, five or ten days of sunshine, which will really bring the, the fruit on and then harvest. Of course, timing is everything. Let's read a little bit this to do with the Napa Valley. Um, Present cool to warm regions will be okay. They will lose their reputation for certain varieties and in time they may develop new reputations for varieties currently grown in regions warmer than their, theirs at present. For example, the Napa Valley might become known for Grenache. It most certainly will struggle to hold its reputation as a quality Cabernet producer. That much is clear. There is no doubt about that. And then it goes on to other countries about Spain, Australia, South Africa. But please, I don't want to take the content of these. This is the website Reign of Terroir. And uh, you're looking at Dr. Richard Smart on viticultural adaption and climate change. I've just got two more pages to go to. And then uh, we will call a halt, probably near to the 40-minute mark. Certainly enough of me talking. And by the way, I think I deserve a little sip. I'm liking that more and more. Anyway, here we go. We are now at www.winepages.com forward slash guests forward slash Caroline forward slash global dash warming html so the topic you can search for this topic via google global warming a hot topic for viticulture by carolyn gilby well done what a great title again i'm only going to pick out one or two little things there's some lovely temperature maps here in the world by the way talking about the oh the average change the annual average surface air temperature and change in June, July, August average, which of course only refers, I suppose, to the Northern Hemisphere. 
because in the southern hemisphere that would be their winter. Okay, let me just read a little bit about it. Global warming may not affect your holiday plans for next year, but viticulture is such a long-term project. Remember, some some uh, vines are over a hundred years old, even the wine, vines in Australia. But how much? Uh, sorry, but it's such a long-term project that it is essential to study the potential effect on grapevines. A good time and plan for the future. Climate change prediction for the next 100 years come from the Hadley Centre. Uh, I might just open that page and look at that in a minute. Incl uh, and include an increase in summer temperature, especially in Europe and North Africa. More frequent extreme weather is predicted along with altered rainfall patterns, an increase in winter rainfall and a decrease in summer rainfall. But of course, all years can be exceptions. As I started at the beginning on this section, uh, the UK has had a particularly wet summer. I'm just going to read one more paragraph, because again, wanted to go to their content. In areas like Germany, where steep slope viticulture and soils are the norm, erosion could become a severe problem in heavy downpours. One potential solution is to plant cover crops to stabilize the soil surface, as this, but this would also have effect on increasing water demand and also, I suppose, reducing the amount of land available to grow the grapes. So that's the other thing, that the, the, the soil could be washed away. Let me have a look if I should read a little bit. Ah, this is another side effect to it. And I'll just read this right near the bottom. Diseases and pests are also likely to show changes, which growers will have to learn to cope with. Already in Germany, ESKA, that's ESKA and black rot appear regularly. Even though 20 years ago, such diseases were never seen due to winter cold. There are also more cycles of great moth, once a rare pest, now a regular occurrence. Downy mildew seems to be the only disease showing a decline. Warm and wet weather will be the worst combination for these disease problems. So it's a, it's a whole battery of issues there, not just the fact that it might just be warmer. Okay, and I'm going to go just to one more link now as we come up to the uh, 30 five minute mark and let me put the link in the room again and this is from www.landandlearnnsw.org.australia so this is an Australian page and um, to put in Google adaptions to climate change viticulture so we're specific now to um, Australia here. So again, we're only going to pick out little small bits uh, from this page and hope you can go and check it out. <clears throat> uh, okay. Um, let's read. Now, uh, well, let's some of the adaptions here. Let's, let me read this. This is interesting. Night harvesting it's a production technique which is now widely used in some areas to produce a fresher, 
fruitier and crispier grape and to ensure that the grapes arrive at the winery as fresh as possible. Now, that has been used, uh, as far as I know, in um, in in viticulture in the past. You know, grapes picked by moonlight. Um, but uh, let's carry on. Some other climate adaptions already used include, and let's read uh, two or three of these, and then we'll stop there. Planting grapevines in specific row direction in relation to the sh sun. In other words, not planting them to maximise the sun's benefit, but just uh, at an angle so they don't get the least, but that, that it modifies um, the, uh, the sunlight on the grapes. To use cover of crops to shelter, shelter the grapevines to reduce vineyard temperatures. Cover crops can also improve soil structure and water penetration. Three, changes, this sounds a little bit similar, changes to canopy structures. The way vines are hung on foliage wires can expose our shade vines from the weather. So the way that they do that green harvest and the way that they leave the amount of leaf on to shelter the bunches of grapes from the sun. And change nutrition programs to increase foliage. So in other words, they, they can put nitrates, I suppose, onto the ground to increase foliage production. For example, to use mulch to retain moisture and provide additional nutrients. Um, and also, uh, they need to be, take more care in managing the, uh, the vines after the harvest has been taken. So it really does mean that, um, you know, just because good practice 50 years ago was good practice, they have to learn to adapt. Not maybe every year, but over, uh, you know, tens of years, certainly over five to ten years, they are seeing changes in that quick a time scale. Okay, I think we'll just be in the room. I'm going to have a sip and then we'll do our little wrap-up for episode 60 of the Big and Fruity Wine Podcast. Okay, so remember you can join me, Dave AC, live every 5pm Eastern Daylight Time, that's 10pm in the UK. Remember, by the way, though, that in the UK we will be coming off summertime in a couple of weeks, and so the time in the UK for this show, although it will remain 5pm Eastern Daylight Time in the States, it will be 9 p.m. here in the UK. So just keep that in order. We go on to, sorry, we come off British summertime on Sunday the 28th of October. Next week, episode 61, the topic is, now, it's spelt as though it says, the last rose of summer. Yes, as the summer comes to an end and the weather is getting a little bit wet and a little bit less warm, well, a lot less warm. I'm going to um, have a rosé or a blush wine uh, to taste, and we will talk about whether um, people will continue drinking on their rosé wines. I've noticed in the supermarkets over the last six weeks, there's a very large section of blush and rosé wines. I'll be interested to see over the next couple of weeks if that section of the uh, the wine area is reduced because they think people will be lying less uh, rosé and blush wines 
and maybe uh, more uh, red wines. Of course, at Christmas, they come out again. A lot of people drink white wines and blush wines at Christmas. Okay, well, with that to look forward to next week, episode 61 of The Big and Fruity. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. I will be back with you. I'm going to play out my Podsafe Jazz outro music. This is Dave AC saying uh, catch you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.